Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Uh, today I have the, the great honor of finally somebody you were actually uh mike uh, you were one of the first people that we wanted to interview on this podcast when we started it uh you know 65 episodes ago Uh, this was one of the first people that we wanted to we had our kind of our hit list okay uh, top 10 people that we wanted to because one of my former students who you um, i don't know if you've actually met him in person but um uh Christopher Wynn, uh, who uh-huh. is a, a huge fan of yours. He's a former student of mine, and he introduced me. He sort of he was my gateway drug. Uh, he gave me yeah. the problem of political authority, which I just uh, I consumed with relish. Read it like two or three times, yeah. and absolutely loved it. Blew my mind. Uh, uh, but okay. anyway, so and so that happened just about when we started the podcast, and so. I was very much sort of looking forward to to meeting you. So so anyway, um, yeah. uh, maybe you could just sort of tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, Mike Humer. Uh, you know what? Uh, who are you? Uh, I'm Mike Humer. Uh, <laughs> Carbon based life form. Yeah, so. I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of Colorado uh, in Boulder, and uh, I've been I've been a professor for something like twenty years. And uh, let's see, uh, I've written uh, a bunch of articles, like 70 articles and about six books, uh, including The Problem of Political Authority, which is my most popular, which libertarians love. Uh, if, you're, um, if you're at all libertarian, you should get, you should get that book. <laughs> and you're yeah. going to like it. Well, but it's a book also that I think a lot, of, um, a lot of progressives and a lot of sort of mainstream liberals and a lot of conservatives and can also really connect with because, uh, and the, you know, I was trying to figure out why this is the case. And I, I think it's because yeah. you have a particular style of, of argumentation, which I, I don't know, maybe the best way is to, to call it, it's very intuitive and commonsensical. You sort yeah. of, you go, you just, you yeah. use very, very. Yeah. So that's, uh, sorry, can you still hear yeah, me? Yeah, yeah, I can. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you're saying that's, yeah, that's the, um, that's the intent. I mean, 
I try to give arguments that don't appeal to ideological premises, right? So even though I said libertarians love it, um, like it's not because I start by assuming some strong libertarian position. It's because I start by assuming sort of common sense morality and then show how you get libertarian conclusions from that. Yeah. Right. So it's supposed to be persuasive to, you know, people with a variety of perspectives, liberal, conservative, uh, or libertarian or whatever. Um, I say supposed to because, you know, many people just can't be convinced because uh, they just don't want to be convinced. Right. Yeah. Well, I think this is actually in the the greatest Socratic tradition, because, I mean, that's what everybody said about Socrates. They said, um, compared to, let's say, the, the other kind of highly paid people, you know, who were taught how to speak, kind of the, the equivalent of today's very scripted, focus-grouped political speakers, Socrates didn't use big words. He didn't use a lot of literary allusions. He spoke in very, very plain speech, and it was incredibly compelling, right? People thought it was very, very, they they actually thought he was somehow, you know, bewitching them or something, you know, they, yeah. but actually all he well. was doing was, was arguing in a common sense kind of plain way, which is very, very compelling. If, if people aren't actively shoving wax in their ears, you know, so as not to hear what you're saying, that kind of argumentation yeah. can be very, uh, very compelling. Now, I mean, to to adequately talk to you about everything I want to talk to you about, it's yeah. gonna take probably two or three, yeah. <laughs> two or three episodes over the yeah. course of the next year, perhaps if I'm lucky. Um, yeah. But so I don't even, you know, I, I guess I'll start. I'll start today, but this is by no means even scratching the surface of all the things I want to talk to you about. But you most recently wrote this uh, blog post, which. Um, I, I shared it, and I've been getting all sorts of blowback on this. It's kind of fascinating, uh, where yeah. you make the argument that actually a lot of people who who call themselves sort of activists that are fighting for social justice don't really care about justice. So, right. um, and and you use your typical uh, sort of sneaky <laughs> Michael humor, commonsensical style of argument. So why do you think yeah. that most social justice activists don't really care about justice? Yeah, so I mean, I had a really simple idea with this post, right? I didn't think this this would be, uh, uh, you know, one of my uh, most popular posts or whatever, but I guess it's a hot topic. Okay, you know, simple idea. Uh, you know, there are arguments about justice about what justice requires there are controversial issues about justice but then there are also sort of core uncontroversial principles of justice and uh, if you claim that you value justice you have to accept the core uncontroversial principles and then you can have different positions on the controversial ones right so a person who cares about justice could have different views about whether affirmative action is just or about whether wealth inequality is just, but they can't have different views about whether it's just to punish people for crimes they did not commit, right? Like the the most core uncontroversial principle you can think of is, yeah, don't punish people for crimes they didn't actually commit. And uh, and then it just looks to me like there are a lot of people in this social justice movement who um, are interested in punishing people for things they didn't do. Right. And, you know, not that they actively want to punish the innocent. It's just that 
they don't care that much about whether the person they're attacking actually did the thing they're attacking them for. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's like it's like uh, my uncle was telling me, like in the old South, um, very often for lynchings and things like that, it didn't it didn't matter so much to them whether the the black guy getting lynched actually did the thing that he was accused of. It's that this public uh, this public execution served a social function in keeping uh, a population in line. And in maintaining certain social relationships and social, it was a, it served a, a function. And so, whether the person was actually guilty or not didn't really matter that much. I mean, yeah. that offends our most basic sense of of what is just. Yeah. Right. And so, if if I understand you correctly, you're saying that the um, the many social justice activists. They their attitude towards the culpability of the person being punished is similarly sort of glib. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it, it frequently seems like uh, somebody just gets accused of something and that's that's enough. That's all I need to hear. They were accused of racism or sexism or whatever. And now I'm going to sign this petition to try to get them fired. OK. Um, and, you know, if. Uh, if you care a lot about justice, then before signing the petition to try to get somebody fired for X, you would do some investigation, right? Like you wouldn't just read the petition itself. You would do some investigation to see, did he actually do that? What's his response? What's his defense? Because, you know, one of the principles of justice is you get to defend yourself. Um, right. So, you know, I just have some, I, I mentioned three examples in the blog post, but, um, there are many examples that you could give. Well, why don't you just for listeners who haven't read it, what what are the three examples you give? So there was the Duke lacrosse case. This was from uh, 2006 when the Duke University lacrosse team was um, accused of basically gang raping this black woman that they'd hired as a stripper. And uh, there was this kind of tide of outrage, uh, especially from the university and um, intellectual community. There'd be these protesters. Uh, So, you know, I was not following the story at the time. I just read about it later. But uh, apparently there were these protesters and, you know, with signs like, uh, you know, urging that they should castrate the players or whatever and um, saying things like, you know, you you know the truth, admit the truth, whatever, um, presupposing that they were guilty. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, you know, 88 uh, professors signed this statement that, um, it contains all these quotations from, uh, I guess, from students. Uh, and it's sort of like it has a heavy implication of assuming that uh, the players were guilty. Right. Uh, and then and they kind of praise the pro- professors are kind of praising the protesters for not waiting until the police investigation was finished to start their protests. Right. Uh, which, you know, to me. And especially in light of what happened later, it kind of sounds like, let's not wait to find out what actually happened. Um, okay, and so what actually happened was the players didn't do it. They were innocent. And um, the the prosecutor was suppressing exonerating evidence. Uh, so the DNA evidence showed that there was zero DNA from anyone on the team on the woman. Uh, the prosecutor was hiding this evidence. He eventually got disbarred which is extremely rare. He was in prison as well, wasn't he? 
I think it was I think he was put in jail for like one day. Right? Okay. It was something like that, yeah. uh, which is, you know, that's like about the most that ever happens to you for the most horrible thing you can do as a prosecutor. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so if he'd done that as a private citizen, you know, he would have multiple years in jail yeah. if he had tried to ruin somebody's life. Uh, anyway, okay. So, uh, but an, okay, people could make mistakes. But, uh, you know, an important test is what you do after, after you find out clearly that it was a mistake. Uh, the answer is, well, like uh, uh, three of the group of 88 professors apologized and the rest uh, never apologized. Right. So you start to think like, oh, so they don't regret. They don't care that they, um, you know, were attacking an innocent person. OK, so. Um, the second case that I had was the Noah Carl case, which is a current, current ongoing case. Uh, so this is a guy who was, um, he was on a research fellowship at St. Edmund's College, and he got dismissed from this position because a, a bunch of people started a petition to try to get him dismissed. Um, 600 academics signed this letter, which accused him of being racist and sexist and things like this. Uh, and then it just looks like the um, the people who signed it hadn't actually looked at his work, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, claimed that he'd uh, relied on discredited race sciences or something, yeah. uh, which he didn't, in fact, do. Yeah. Uh, he'd written an article in which he defended the right of researchers to investigate um, race and intelligence. But he didn't himself investigate that, and he didn't just you know make claims about it. And so, um, but you know, in order to sign a petition trying to get somebody fired and ruin their career and whatever, um, I guess these days you don't have to look at them. You don't have yeah. to look at their work. This caused a, a big kind of spat between uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb and David Graeber, the guy who wrote. Uh, you know, debt the first 5,000 years and bullshit jobs and stuff like that. Because David Graeber signed the petition and Nassim Nicholas Taleb, when he saw the petition, he looked at all the names and he saw some people that he knew. And so he contacted David Graeber and said, did you actually look into this guy's work before you signed that? And, you know, you know, to his credit, he honestly said, well, not really. And he said, well, you're a fucking asshole then. Like, <laughs> he's like, why did you do that? He goes, that's highly unethical. You're ruining this person's life. And you didn't even like, and he said, well, you know, I think it's important to be like on the right side of history on this. And he was like, you're <laughs> gross. Like, that's <laughs> terrible. Like, why did you do that? And so they got into this very public spat on Twitter, which was, uh, you know, kind of, in a, in a horrible way, like, like I don't know, mud wrestling, sort of entertaining. But it was, but he, yeah, Taleb's point was like, this is really unethical. Like, you should not sign something if you haven't looked into it. And, and Graeber's response was so kind of like, eh, you know, whatever. Which is exactly yeah, what so, you're talking about. Yeah, so, um, you know, I think there might be a difference between social justice and individual justice. Um <laughs> Like, I think I think justice is fundamentally individual because it's individuals who have rights. Uh, and when you when when you hear about a case like this, what justice requires is um, you know, it requires the truth about that individual case. You have to find out the truth about that case 
and that individual should get what they deserve. And uh, what's going on in the social justice crowd is maybe um, they don't so much care about the individual. They care about the groups that people belong to. And so, yeah, well, this guy's a white man. And uh, we're going to strike a blow for minorities, right? And, uh, yeah, you know, and we don't care about whether the individual was, was treated justly. Yeah. There's a, a book that I read in grad school. It was called, um, it was called, uh, oh, what was it? This, uh, that Noble Dream, uh, the, the Objectivity Problem in American History. And it was uh, very, very, by Nozick, uh, not the Nozick, another Nozick. Uh, but, and it was a very interesting book, but he, he has this one scene in there where he talks about this, uh, this white historian, young guy, who was presenting a paper on on kind of uh, slavery and things. He was a very kind of good lefty, you know, reliable lefty guy. Um, and he got just eviscerated by some, some other people at the, at the conference and just humiliated. And they called him like all these horrible names. Well, he ended up, he killed himself two days later. Wow. And so he went and he, he interviewed this one of the guys who was responsible, this African-American historian, for just humiliating this guy in public and, and le- that led to his suicide. And he said, well, you know, at that point, it was I was just sort of doing what history required. Like at that point, I wasn't an individual. He wasn't an individual. It was those were heady times. And people were basically just acting as instruments of history. And I remember just reading this and thinking, oh, my God, that is so creepy. <laughs> like, you know, just abdicating all of your individual responsibility to treat somebody as a human being, as a colleague, as and just think, well, that doesn't matter. You know, like yeah. at that point, I'm a team member. You're a team member. Too bad. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so, you know, obviously this is um, factually wrong. Like, history doesn't do anything. History is not an agent. Uh, it's you. It's you who's doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, uh, for, uh, for not very good reasons. Yeah, so what is your third example in the piece? Yeah, so, yeah the third example was the Rebecca Tuvel case. This is where, um, so this uh, philosophy professor, Rebecca Tuvel, published a paper in Hypatia, which is a feminist-oriented uh, philosophy journal. It's a paper about transracialism, uh, comparing transracialism to transgenderism. So transracialism is where you identify with a different race from your race at birth, so to speak. Like Rachel uh, so, you know, type. This was yeah. this was after the famous Rachel. Yeah. Where Dolce uh, had, um, she was a white person who kind of turned herself black. Yeah, yeah. And she had a job with the NAACP, whatever, and she just, like, wanted to be known as a black person. Okay. Yeah. So this article by Tuvel is comparing that to transgenderism and kind of saying, you know, the arguments for why you would not accept transracialism are kind of parallel to arguments against uh, transgenderism. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so she got attacked by um, these other philosophers, um, where the so there's this you know online letter calling for her article to be renounced, uh, retracted by the journal, uh, and the the overall 
message of it is that Tuvel is transphobic or something. Yeah. And, you know, if you read the paper, that's just obviously factually false. Yeah, (laughs) I've read it. It's it's completely false. Like, that's not her point at all. (laughs) The point, her point is to accept the transracial people. Like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Change your race if you want. Um, It's not to (laughs) not to reject the transgender people. Yeah. So uh, fortunately, Tuvela came out of it okay because, uh, you know, like the So hundreds of people signed this letter, but um I think the profession as a whole was on her side. Uh, so, you know, she's still, she didn't get fired or anything like Noah Carl. Mm-hmm. Well, Noah Carl was also somebody who was in a very vulnerable, as like a somebody new and just trying to break into the field, really, right? Like, wasn't it, wasn't he like yeah. just like a postdoc or something or a yeah, graduate so, student? He wasn't, he wasn't actually a tenured. So that, I mean, that was a whole other layer of ugly to that case is that this is really a bunch of, you know, people like you and I who are tenured, we, you know, we have to really fuck up to get fired. Right. So like, like it's a bunch of tenured people picking on a vulnerable person within their community. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I mean, so uh, Noah Carl was on a research fellowship. um, And by the way, you know, like, Making it in philosophy is extremely difficult. When you get a position, you're very lucky. Yeah. And, uh, and um, so, you know, having somebody derail your career at the beginning um, that could, like, just, you know, totally ruin your career. Yeah. Uh, Tuvel was a pre-tenured, tenured track, but not tenured okay. uh, professor. So, um, you know, conceivably, she could have uh, um, wound up being denied tenure. Um <clears throat> And, uh, you know, she probably worried about that, but I don't think, uh, I don't think she has to worry about that now. Yeah. Right. But, uh, but as you say, like that, that is also very ugly, like, you know, attacking this junior professor, uh, before, before she has tenure. Yeah. So what do you think? I mean, another issue, cause I was, I was talking to some friends about, about your piece and, one of the things that uh, the two people at the table uh, at, at the pub actually <laughs> brought up was they said, well, you know, and this is something that I'm quite sympathetic to. They said, how can you really talk about justice uh, outside of the context of society? I mean, justice does not exist. It's not one of Newton's laws. It doesn't exist. <laughs> you can't derive it, you know, from. So it's it's all sort of a construct to some extent, right? I mean, we, um, so doesn't, I, doesn't justice have to be somehow, um, enacted in a social context? Uh, no. So, uh, so <laughs> okay. I mean, I, you know, so I'm not sure exactly what, like what position you're, um, hinting at there. Like, I don't know if you're a nihilist or a cultural <laughs> relativist or whatever. Neither. But, so, uh, uh, um, Okay, but so, you know, like some people have the extreme position that, oh, there are no moral facts, right? So, yeah, so there's nothing unjust. So whatever, punish anybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, but I mean, I don't think that's really the best, like, you know, when you're talking about the problem with the social justice movement or, or whatever, I don't think that's the best time to to raise that sort of issue, right? Because like, <laughs> that's sort of like, yeah, you know, if there's somebody who's on trial for murder, you could say, well, there's nothing wrong with murder because nothing whatsoever is wrong. On the other hand, we can still like execute him for doing it, even though it wasn't wrong, because there's nothing wrong with executing anyone either. <laughs> but, but you know, that's not really to have that conversation. 
because that's sort of like, you know, if you're arguing about physics and somebody brings up external world skepticism, right? Yeah. Um, okay, but more likely you are getting at, well, um, you know, maybe society kind of determines what the norms of justice are specifically. Like, maybe they don't determine all moral facts, but they determine the norms of justice, okay? Well, um, the laws and the conventions have an effect on justice because they have an effect on what can justly be expected of people, but they're not, they don't solely determine it, right? If the laws completely determine justice, then slavery would be just, right, in societies that practiced it, so back when it was legal. Uh, so presumably it's not. Uh, and the, this principle that you don't punish people for things they didn't do, like that's not one of the things that you need conventions to specify. There are things that you need conventions to specify, okay? So like an example is um, there's an oil deposit that's you know, located under my land and also under yours, right? Because it's big, it doesn't respect property boundaries. And I want to extract the oil and you don't want me to extract it. Okay, who has the rights? Well, maybe that has to be settled by the law or by conventions of society because there's not like some, you know, objective natural right to extract oil or prevent people from extracting oil onto your land or whatever. Um, okay, but not everything is like that, right? No. Like when you think about it, you can't just intuitively see who gets the oil rights, I don't think. But uh, when you think about punishing people for stuff they didn't do, no, you can intuitively see that, right? So like if, if society's conventions say it's okay to do that, then society is wrong. It's just how it is, right? Yeah. And also, by the way, it's like, um, you know, justice has to do with interacting with people, but not necessarily society. Like there could just, you only need to have two individuals, right? And, you know, if, one, if the one individual punishes the other individual for stuff he didn't do, that's an unjust, right? It doesn't have to be an entire society. Yeah. Well, I mean, I also, I, I'm quite fascinated by, you know, Franz Duvall's work on this and showing that, that in fact, lots of social animals seem to have rudimentary conceptions of, of justice. And they, and they these, these are quite extensive, you know, and they have to do with, with things like not punishing people for things they did, individuals for things they didn't do. But they also, um, they seem to have many of them an understanding of property rights. They seem to have an understanding of the relationship between uh, rewards and effort that mm -hmm. uh, if, you know, the, the classic example Duvall talks about in his book, um, Good Natured, is that if you have a, a, bunch of, a bunch of chimpanzees sitting around on a really hot day and they're all just in the shade because it's just ridiculously hot and you have like a, a young female equivalent of like a sort of a teenager who decides to climb all the way to the top of the tree and get a bunch of in the hot sun uh, and get some really nice new shoots or some fruits and stuff like that. And she's, you know, it's hard to get up there in the heat and she gets this and then she brings the stuff back down. The, the large males or the, even the, the large females, they could just run up and just grab her stuff and and just yep. take it by force but they don't and they yep. have this understanding that yes she should share um mm -hmm. she shouldn't just keep it all to herself but she has they they recognize that she has a natural right to most of it 
They also recognize that she has a right to share it with her mother and her sisters first and to give them maybe a bigger, bigger part. Um, And then they'll come over and they'll maybe they'll ask for some, but they don't just come over and hit her on the head and take it. By force, yeah. you know, like as if they were Nietzschean supermen, right? Like, and yeah. they don't—they don't come over and just take it by force. And and ones that do will experience a very dramatic drop in status, and they might even get beaten up and kicked out of the group. So, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, yeah. You, you read stuff like that, and there's analogs in in dolphins and killer whales and in monkeys and in uh, yeah. all sorts. So, it, it seems like our our ideas of um, our common sense, intuitive ideas of justice are not just random. Yeah. Right? There so, is something hardwired there. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not sure how much uh, chimpanzees understand. So, you know, we might be anthropomorphizing a little bit and attributing to them beliefs sure. about justice, per se. Um, but, you know, in that kind of example, uh, if you did beat the other chimp over the head and steal the fruit or whatever, um, uh, things wouldn't go very well after that, right? Like, then then the other chimps would not, in the future, would not go up and get uh, any fruit, right? <laughs> yeah. Because uh, they don't want to be beaten over the head. Yeah, if you're, uh, you've so, taken away the incentive to hard work and, you know, in- initiative, right? So. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's sort of a practical self-interested, long-term self-interested rationale, which might be what's going on. Um and I don't know if the chimps even understand that. It might just be that they evolved to behave that way because, in fact, uh, things work out better in the chimp society. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, they may not understand why uh, why they feel like acting in a certain way. Yeah, well, I think most pro-social behaviors are quite. Um, they're. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'd go so far to say they're innate. But they're definitely the the pathways are all there, and they can be brought online, sort of yeah. fairly easily. I don't think it's I don't think we need to, uh, you know, this whole idea that somehow uh, we have to be taught absolutely everything, and we're just like you know blank slates yeah. that you know monsters until we are taught that that doesn't yeah. seem convincing to me. I mean, no, we're not blank slates. Um, yeah, so uh, I mean, I think some of the instincts that people have for uh, ways of interacting with each other um, evolved because uh, they were required for social harmony. Because if you don't follow these norms, then just you know things degenerate, right? So if you have this thing where when people do productive activity, you just like expropriate them, then like society is going to degenerate fast. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, if you have uh, if you just have this. Um, if you don't have this prohibition on attacking people without provocation, <laughs> then, <laughs> you know, the society is just going to go downhill quickly. Um, now, you know, sometimes we have instincts that when we think about them, uh, we decide they're not good. Uh, so um, in like in human instincts, um, we kind of feel OK about attacking the out group. Right. Mm hmm. Like there's always a norm, don't attack the other people within your group, but in in all societies, I think. But uh, in most societies, it's kind of acceptable to go and attack the other society. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so then you have to think like it requires a certain amount of ethical reflection to figure out that, oh, yeah, that's not actually a, a good idea. <laughs> um, OK, but, you know, I kind of 
um, I kind of worry that uh, sometimes we reflect on um, reflect on our intuitive norms and decide to reject them when we shouldn't, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, you might have people who are thinking, oh, yeah, kind of, it kind of seems wrong to punish people who might not have done the thing that they're accused of, but it's for the greater social good. And, uh, and then when you think that, like it's for the greater social good, you're usually wrong. Uh, and, you know, this might be one of the norms that's kind of holding social cooperation together that you're undermining. And like if enough people did that, society would fall apart. Yeah. You know, but luckily, society isn't actually going to fall apart. But, you know, that's because most people are not going to be doing this thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we are by nature also like very tribal creatures. And for a lot of human history, it was the norm. You know, what, what you describe as a, as a, and I agree with you, but as a, a flaw in kind of social justice reasoning has actually been the norm for a lot of human history that if there was something was something was bad done to my tribe um, by by you, let's say, uh, one of the ways of sort of making peace with the tribe was give me 10 of your young men and uh, and three young women and we're going to kill them or enslave them and that's going to pay off the debt and then it's going to be all good. So this idea of like blaming... The and I mean, just look. One of the foundational documents of our of our culture. If you look at the Bible, it's filled. It's absolutely filled with people being sort of group recriminations, going after a particular group because of something that an individual did. Right? It might. It, yeah. it might even be a. I mean, if you look at a rather sort of horrible example of this, uh, you look in like the Book of Numbers where. Jehovah says that, you know, people will be, the sons and daughters will be punished unto the seventh generation for the sins yeah. of the of the fathers. And there's total wholesale ethnic cleansing that happens in yeah. the Bible based on things that ancestors did, right? And you look in the, yeah. in the United States before the Civil War, one of the major... Sorry, I'm, tra- I'm yeah. having trouble hearing. Uh, uh, well, one of the major theological justifications for the pro-slavery argument was that Africans were all um, under the curse of Ham. Right? Ham is the the son of Noah who came in the came in the tent or the cave, and Noah was drunk. His dad's like you know pissed drunk on the floor, naked, and he sees his father's junk, and because he saw his father's junk, he's cursed by God. Uh, you know, and he's, he says, you know, you are going to be the, uh, your sons and daughters are going to be the slaves of your brother, you know, because you looked on your father's nakedness. It's the most retarded passage in the end. <laughs> but, um, so it's, it's in there. Check it out. It's pretty crazy. But yeah. anyway, the, uh, one of the, the pro-slavery argument in the South, one of their main arguments, the theological arguments is they said that Africans, black Africans are the descendants of of Ham, um, and they are under his curse. And so therefore, they all deserve slavery because of something, which is completely insane, we'll leave that alone, um, because of something that their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather did, they all deserve. So I guess what the social justice warriors are arguing for is not something new. It's in many ways, it's a return to the human norm, the pre-modern norm. 
Yeah. Yeah, you know, when I said this this thing about um, the core uncontroversial principles in the post, I said, you know, this is uh, universally recognized. And then some people um, responded on Facebook that, no, you know, <laughs> this principle is violated in the Bible. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the, the maybe biggest example is original sin, right? Yes. So Adam committed the sin of eating some fruit <laughs> and, uh, from the tree of knowledge. So acquiring knowledge, oh, that's horrible. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then all of us have to be punished for that that thing that we didn't do that happened yeah. before we were born and man uh, yeah. shall shall earn his bread by the sweat of his brow because of adam's sin and then women shall experience uh pain in childbirth and they shall be subservient to their husbands all because of eve's sin so yeah that's that violates the most basic principle that so all of us are being punished men dilbert style and women sort of handmade style uh, yeah. that we are all being punished for something we didn't do individually. Uh, yeah, sounds pretty messed up. <laughs> uh, uh, so now, I mean, the, the SJWs wouldn't, I don't think they would say that they were doing that. Uh, it just kind of looks like that's in fact what they're doing, right? Um, I think they wouldn't say, yeah, I don't care if that guy individually actually did it, did what he was said to do. Um, I think they would say, no, he obviously did it, right? Um, but, you know, at some point it becomes hard to keep saying that. Um, so, uh, you well, know, like... I don't know. I mean, when, with the Me Too movement, with the, like, take a, a case like Aziz Ansari, right? I remember that just caused such a... Among my some of my friend groups, that caused, like, people to stop talking to each other, uh, colleagues stop talking to each other, friends... People like defriended and blocked each other in social media, and yeah. basically, with that case, is that you had this this sort of garbage news site, Babe.net, you know, writes this this totally slanderous piece about uh, Aziz Ansari, and there were some people who said, "Okay, look, um, this is really unjust, and we should wait until we get more information about this." And then there were some people who even said, "You know what? Even if everything..." that she said is true exactly the way she said it. This is just a bad date with a kind of socially awkward, douchey guy. Uh, this is yeah. not sexual assault. This is not, uh, and this is not me too worthy at all. And just saying that was enough to have people say, well, you're basically just supporting rape culture. It's like, uh, yeah. no, I'm <laughs> supporting um, liberal Bad political, pro, yeah, liberal political institutions based on you know rule of law and like due process. No, I'm not supporting rape culture. Like, but that was the automatic. And and once it came out that uh, in fact the site was a garbage site and that there was other side to the story, there were a number of people who did exactly what you're saying is only implied, and they but they did it straightforwardly. They said it doesn't matter. If, you know, this movement is so important that it, it's almost sort of like, uh, you know, eminent domain, right? Like building this highway is so important that it doesn't matter if we have to trash your house and yeah. expropriate. Like it doesn't matter if we have to trash Aziz Ansari's life because, you know, you got to, you know, eggs and omelets and all that, right? Like you yeah. have to, the ends justify the means. 
Yeah. So, and, you know, so the, the first obvious thing to say is, oh, so that's, so you don't care about justice because <laughs> like, that's, you know, that's not how justice works. And the other thing to say about that is, uh, you know, I think you guys are not, not really very good at the utilitarian reasoning here, right? Because when that becomes the norm in the movement that, um, you know, you, you just like attack people without finding out whether it's true, uh, it becomes known that that's the case. And then as a result, other people don't believe accusations, right? And then other people also don't trust your entire movement, right? Yeah. So, I mean, what happens now is people who actually were sexually assaulted, um, there's going to be more skepticism about them because of people who have given false accusations. Um, now, by the way, about that particular case, uh, I think I read about it at the time, but I don't actually remember that case. But, um, like, I don't remember uh, what actually happened. Okay, but, you know, I know there are cases where people um, people give these sort of, like, um, stories about social justice-related crimes, and then they're just factually false. And when you do that, you're not striking a blow for the movement. You're doing the opposite. You're undermining the credibility of the entire movement. Yeah. You're causing people like me to say that the people on your side don't give a shit about justice. Yeah. Yeah. And this is actually, you know, not to get into sort of Alex Jones territory, but, um, you know, everything's a false flag, you know, <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah. I, I have had close ties and with, uh, the environmental movement for years and with, uh, to some extent to the like animal rights movement and to, and I, I know, firsthand from you know one of my colleagues and a number of friends who worked uh with Paul Watson on Sea Shepherd and worked in another a number of organizations that they have had plants you know like uh like either corporate or police plants like secret double like agents that were pretending to be activists and they became very good at sort of figuring out who those activists were because they were always the ones that were proposing violence and proposing uh -huh. crazy things because <laughs> they specifically wanted to discredit the movement. I see. Right? So, I mean, you just, if you look at the history of activism just in the last half century, it would, it would sort of tell you to follow exactly what you're talking about, the utilitarian logic, that why would you want to do things that make it easier for people to discredit the movement. Yeah. Like it's, uh, you're not helping anything. Right. Uh. But I guess when people get sort of, uh, they, they get all excited about something. It's, I don't know. There's some sort of weird crowd dynamic that sets in and people just, you know, they become yeah. a, a tribe. Right. And at that point there's just, you're either on our team or you're not. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, one, one of my speculations is that most social activists, um, they don't so much care about the values that they're directly advocating as um, they care about portraying themselves as people who are fighting for those values. And they get a certain amount of uh, emotional satisfaction from thinking of themselves that way and also being perceived that way by others. Okay, so if you want to appear to be pursuing X um, versus if you just want X itself, uh, your behavior is similar in a lot of ways, right? If you want to appear to be pursuing X, you've got to pursue X, which is what you do if you want X. Okay, but there is a difference 
Uh, and that is, if you really want X, then you have to be careful about forming correct beliefs about what uh, achieves X. If you just want the emotional satisfaction of portraying yourself as pursuing it, then you just need to form strong beliefs about what, what promotes X, uh, but they don't have to be true. Yeah. So you can be you can get these really confident beliefs with very little evidence. Yeah, okay, well, I know, right? I know, so, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So then you know, um, thinking about this, uh, so that would that's how we would distinguish these two motivations. So now we can ask, okay, what which is the motivation of most uh, social activists? Uh, yeah, it really looks like it's the portraying yourself as pursuing X motivation, right? Yeah. Yeah, I remember reading about uh, Edmund Burke, and he was talking about uh, in one of his letters uh, why he supported the American Revolution and why a lot of people, a lot of Brits, um, actually supported the American Revolution. And he said, "Well, you know, I've just seen a, an overall pattern of," he said, "the the American colonists they they seem to actually really value liberty and you know the things that." And one of the examples he gave, I thought it was very funny, is. Uh, John Adams, right, who ended up being one of the first presidents of the United States. John Adams was a lawyer, and he defended the British soldiers that were uh, that were tried as you know in the, the sort of what's called like the Boston Massacre, right? Uh, yeah. it, he defended those soldiers and got them off. <laughs> yeah, and he was himself this you know a hardcore patriot who ended up being central to the the revolution. And because he thought justice was more important than just my side versus your side. And he really thought yeah. that getting to the truth about what actually happened, rather than just lining up based on what your tribe yeah. is, was important. Sorry. Yeah. So, so sorry, did Adams think that the soldiers were innocent? He thought Is that, uh, well, I'm not sure what he thought personally, but he thought that sort of, bringing witnesses and getting them that getting to the bottom of what actually happened was important yeah. and yeah. that they deserved a fair trial. I, my guess from what I've seen of his letters and diaries is that Adams figured that, um, that this was basically a bunch of drunk guys acting like idiots and yeah. mouthing off and that it escalated and one thing led to another and that probably the, uh, the Americans were, in the wrong and that also that the British soldiers overreacted and shouldn't have fired on the crowd. And, um, I think he yeah. probably just thought this was a bunch of idiots behaving like yeah. idiots, but yeah. what's what, what was important to Burke was that he actually thought that, you know, even though tensions are really high right now, the truth matters, right? Yeah. The truth actually matters that just lining up behind our side, you know, like like what you saw with the Kavanaugh thing, right? Where nobody even cared what the truth was. It was just yeah. like, this is my tribe, and so he's guilty. And this is my tribe, and so he's innocent. And it's like, yeah. you guys, neither of you <laughs> seem to even care whether this guy is a rapist or not. Like, you don't even, <laughs> you don't even seem to care. And you don't seem yeah. to care about process. And that's very disturbing. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that was an interesting episode, which, you know, some people mentioned to me in, uh, in the comments, the Kavanaugh episode. And uh, people have very different perceptions about it, which, you know, continues to be 
puzzling um, because you know some people thought, oh yeah, he's just totally obviously guilty, and others thought, no, he's just obviously innocent. And it was very strange to me. Yeah, me too. Um, I didn't see that anything was obvious. Yeah, because I was not there. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there's no physical evidence. There's just two people who are contradicting each other. So how can it be obvious what happened? Yeah. And, and it was 30 years ago. Yeah. Right? So like, you know, e- even, even with the best of intentions, um, they might not. They might be reporting incorrectly because they don't even remember details. Yeah. Well, I so. mean, he definitely did. Did he come off as like exactly every stereotype I have in my mind, uh, my mind of a kind of a douchey frat boy type <laughs> guy? Absolutely. Did she yeah. come off as very, very credible? Absolutely. But so yeah. what? Like, yeah. that's just that's just my impressions of two people in their 50s. Like. You know, it's yeah. not, uh, th- that's not evidence of anything, right? So Yeah, and so, yeah, one of the things I want to say about, like, I guess criminal justice is um, people incorrectly think that they can tell if somebody is telling the truth by looking at the person and listening to them. <laughs> and there are actually psychological studies on this. Like, people think they can detect liars, by looking at their face or listening to the tone of voice, and they cannot, right? Yeah. They proved this in the psychological studies because they would instruct, you know, they have these different groups of people instruct this person lie and instruct this person tell the truth and, like, have the observers try to tell who's who's lying and who's telling the truth, and they cannot tell. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, I look at that, and um, so Christine Blasey Ford looks credible. Like, my reaction would be, that sounds true, but also, I know that I cannot tell just by looking. What you need is uh, independent evidence. Like if this were a criminal investigation, you would have to have um, so, you'd want there to be some physical evidence, which there isn't uh, after that amount of time, which is why there's a statute of limitations. By the way, I mean the other thing I want to say is, of course, it's not a criminal case; it's a Supreme Court confirmation, so it's okay to have um, different standards for that. Yeah. Right, like you don't have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he did it. Yeah. Because you might think, yeah, if there's a reasonable suspicion, I don't want him on the court. Yeah. Because uh, he's not entitled to be on the court. We're not like sending him to jail or anything. Yeah. No, I I wrote a piece on it at the time, and I I I, I called it the the babysitter rule. Right. So, I I want to have if we're talking about a a criminal case, I want to have an incredibly high burden of proof i mean because that's you're talking about taking away somebody's freedom you're talking about that's a really really big deal so burden of proof is going to be very high on that then if you're talking about a civil case just like a tort against somebody well then you still want to have a high burden of proof but it's going to be lower than in a criminal case right yeah and then um and then you go down from there and i would say somewhere far lower than those two things would be what I call like the babysitter rule. So if I'm going to, if I have a somebody that is going to babysit my kids, I've got two like, you know, when my, my sons are 16 and 17 now, but when they were, you know, let's say like, you know, five and six and my wife and I were going out and we were getting a babysitter. If I've heard from a more or less credible person that this babysitter is neglectful or abusive 
or is there something you know wrong with this person? In that situation, um, I'm just going to find another babysitter, right? It, yeah. Because it's the burden of proof is so low that uh, why not? There's plenty of other perfectly you know great candidates for being a babysitter. I yeah. this little bit of doubt. Why bother? Why bother going with that person? The costs of being wrong are are right very little. Yeah. The costs of uh, you know the costs of getting a false positive are not very big because the person's not having their freedom taken away. They're not you know it's not any big deal. It's just you're not going to be my babysitter. And so, likewise, I think for the Supreme Court or other similar jobs, if there's if if there's sort of some credible charges against the person, then why not just go for somebody that doesn't yeah. have credible charges against them? Of course, the response yeah. I get from my, my conservative and my Republican family members and friends is they say, well, you know, as soon as you set that precedent, then they can basically just get rid of anybody they don't like by spreading rumors about them. Yeah. And I don't have a good answer to that. Yeah, so, you know, this is a, a good point about the burden of proof. So when we think about where the burden of proof should be set, like the first thing you think is, oh, yeah, so we have a high burden of proof in criminal cases because it's worse to punish an innocent person than it is to fail to punish a guilty person. Exactly. And so, so that's one reason. Another reason is, Think about what happens in the system if you lower the burden of proof. So if the burden of proof was lowered for criminal cases, um, then cops would do less investigation because once they thought that they'd satisfied the burden of proof, they would stop investigating. Uh, also, there would be like more false accusations are going to come out. Right? So you don't make a false accusation if you know it's not going to be sustained. Um, if if um, all you need is, you know, preponderance of the evidence, then you can make more, like you can get away with making more accusations, and then the rate of false accusation goes up. If you only need a reasonable suspicion, um, then, you know, it might go way up, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, you know, what I was thinking in this, during the Kavanaugh um, in, um, confirmation hearings, I was thinking, what they should do is the president should put out a list of people that he's considering and then just like, you know, make that public before he does the actual nomination. And part of the reason is like once he's actually nominated one of those people, then his side digs in. They feel like they have to win. Yeah. And so they, they try to get that person through. Um, if you put out the list, then you just find out if anybody, um, has accusations against the people on that list. And then you can make the decision as to who's the best candidate in light of that. Hmm. That would work very well. Yeah. Right. And like, yeah. And if the other side tries to like bring accusations against every single person on your list, then they're going to lose credibility. Yeah. Yeah. That would be pretty obvious if it, they would sort of show the tip their hand if they do that. Right. But yeah. then, you know, also you, you look at just in that particular case, like, she had so much to lose by coming forward, right? She, she yeah. definitely, I don't think that was a big, that was not a good career move or family move for her in any way. So it was, yeah. um, I'm, I'm inclined to, to believe that 
that's how she remembers things. I don't know if yeah. that's actually how they happened, but I I, yeah. I believe that that's how she remembers them, right? So yeah, it's so, uh, yeah, it's it's brutal. I mean, it's totally brutal. Yeah, I mean, so you know, at the at the time, some of the um, the people, the pro Kavanaugh people on Facebook or whatever, were saying, "Oh, well, she's probably getting like positive reactions from leftists, and she only cares about the leftists, so she's getting hate mail from right wingers." But okay, but um, I mean, I didn't I didn't really believe that that's that, that was the motivation. Um, some people were saying, "Well, she probably." Uh, you know, she's just a leftist and she doesn't want this right wing person to get confirmed. Um, uh, you know, so my. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and whatever I say about this case, some people are going to hate it, hate it and probably hate me. Right. But <laughs> I think the you know, dust my, is settled on that one. My reaction to it was, yeah, most likely something like what she said happened. And probably she and he had very different perceptions of what was happening at the time. Yeah, he probably thought, "Oh, we're just horsing around or whatever," and yeah. she probably thought, "Oh my God, he's trying to rape me." Um, uh, but he knew that he wasn't actually going to rape her, so he probably thought it was funny or something, yeah, know, because because he was an asshole and whatever, yeah. and it, and not empathizing, and, uh, and, and drunk, and, you know, a teenage right, yeah. drunk person with a not fully formed prefrontal cortex, you know, behaving yeah. like an unempathetic dick, right? So yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and then it's totally possible that he doesn't even remember it. Yeah. And so then, thirty years later, this woman is saying this thing. It's totally possible that he thinks that this is a political smear campaign, politically motivated. Yeah. Yeah, I know that, uh, that that was the impression I got watching both of them. You know, it's funny saying this after what you just said about how we can't tell when people are lying. But I I got the impression that they were both telling the truth. Yeah. <laughs> and that that was just you know, a mess, right? A yeah. complete mess. I mean, I don't know, but if, but if you have these categorical things, like we need to, this is our group of sacred victims, right? And people yeah. from that category group, anything they say is true. You know, like there's this horrible expression. Uh, how do you say it in English? It's, um, it, it's a, it's a line that one, this, this guy from the Vichy government said, uh, you know, he said, my country, right or wrong, you know, yep. that basically like if you decide that, OK, these are my loyalties and anybody from this group that says something, well, they're right because they're on my <laughs> team. Right. They are. Yeah. You know, it's, it's that wonderful little like syllogism that was going around on the Internet where it shows like uh, somebody has done a thing, a bad thing. <laughs> and then it sort of goes in the decision trees like, is this person one of my on my team? Uh, if yes, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if not, bastard. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> and it sort of like, goes down like so. I mean, that's uh, that seems to be what's going on more and more. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, uh, and there's a psychological study on that where um, they they had people um, look at stuff that had been done by politicians, right? And similar uh, alleged misdeeds by Republican and Democrat politicians, right? And like uh, the Republicans would minimize it if it was done by a Republican, and um, but condemn it if it was done by a Democrat, and vice versa, right? So, um, not surprising. Uh, in in some of these cases, like when you see people's opinions just um, break down, like almost totally along party lines, 
then uh, yeah, you have to conclude that it's um, irrationality. And then you should wonder why those people themselves are not concluding that. Like, yeah. Right. If your if your opinion about these cases is totally predicted by what party you belong to, rethink it. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe it's not that obvious. Yeah, I had this I had this like really crazy dream. Um, this is about like two weeks ago, and I'm sure it was inspired by Neil Stevenson's new novel uh, Fall or Dodge in Hell, which is uh, fantastic, by the way. Um, yeah. But in the Okay, in, in the novel, one of the things that happens early on is there's this guy. Um, he's sort of like, a, I, I don't know, he's like, he's kind of a cross between Peter Thiel and Elon Musk. Uh, but, but anyway, he, he wants to sort of wake everybody up to the fact that the internet is not reliable and that you can't trust things that you read on the internet. So he organizes this massive deep fake hoax and he wants to, and he convinces everybody that there has been a, a nuclear, that terrorists have detonated a nuclear weapon in, um, in Nevada, like somewhere, or Utah. It's in, in rural Utah, right? And it, it, it goes viral, complete with like um, people in airplanes looking out the window with their cell phone and filming the mushroom cloud and like, and all this, you know, crazy, crazy stuff. So when it finally comes out that this has been um, a hoax, there are all these Alex Jones people type people who say, no, it really happened. They just don't, the government doesn't want you to know it really happened. And like, and they become, and so like 40 years after the fact in this novel, there are people, they're like, remember Moab. They have, it's supposed to have happened in Moab, uh, Utah. And so they have like post, they have like uh, bumper stickers on their cars, you know, remember Moab. And like, like they, (laughs) they, they just, they, they dig in. Right. So the dream I had was that somebody wanted to demonstrate how ridiculously loyal Trump's followers were. And so they did a deep fake of Trump having a barbecue on the front lawn of the, of the White House at night and burning a cross on the front <laughs> lawn of the White House. And, and all these immediately all these like Scott Adams type people came out and said, oh, well, you know, it, it's not really a KKK symbol. It's just an old kind of Christian Celtic symbol. And, you know, <laughs> it's just a way of like having a good time with the family. And it's just a way of lighting up. And it's actually like a nice Christian thing. It's, it's, and all these people rushed, all these pundits rushed to sort of explain away a fucking burning cross on the front lawn of the White House. And then, of course, it came out that it was actually a fake. Right. Yeah. And by doing that, it just thoroughly discredited these people. You are you are actually you will explain away a burning cross on the front. It was a, it was a great dream. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. it was sort of like a like a gaming out the if I shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, I won't lose any supporters. You know, if I burn a cross <laughs> on the front lawn, I still will not be a racist, according to Tucker Carlson. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, a, what do you think? Do you think that's just sort of one example of a a broader trend that it that sort of is affecting everybody regardless of their politics? Yeah, um, yeah. So the Neil Stevenson story sounds uh, like totally what would happen. Um, <laughs> now, uh, I don't know if your dream is that realistic. I don't know if they would literally <laughs> uh, uh, accept the burning cross. 
uh, you know, maybe at some point then they would admit, okay, yeah, I guess he's a racist. <laughs> uh, uh, although I'm not sure that his supporters would stop supporting him then. Yeah. Well, I have I have a lot of family members who voted for him and are very enthusiastic supporters of Trump. And, you know, after the most recent thing, right, you know, telling, you know, go back to where you came from, go back to your, you know, all that stuff, uh, they they wavered. <laughs> they they definitely wavered. They were like, oh, oof. Yeah. Oh, that was, that was cringy. Yeah. That was, that hurt. Like, they didn't, uh, I mean, obviously, Hello? it's a small sample size, but they, uh, they, they didn't try and defend it or explain yeah. it away. They just thought, "Oh God, that's that was that was horrible." Yeah, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. So um, you know, there was this. Uh, um, it's funny. I think was this an Onion story or a Babylon Bee story? Anyway, a story about how um, people who have been complaining about racism for. Uh, many years are having trouble expressing how racist Trump is, right? <laughs> and uh, you know, they were they were thinking of coming up with a new word like double plus racist. But then <laughs> that but then sounds they, like Babylon B. <laughs> yeah. But then yeah. they realized that they all already used that term from Mitt Romney. Yeah. And so um, yeah, I mean, this is this is the issue with language, right? I always I tell my students when it, we talk about in uh, intro to epistemology and a number of other courses that the the way I think about it is I said, you know, words are words like racist or sexist or tyranny or fascist or you know these they're like plastic bags. You know, you can you can put a bunch of stuff in them, but if you overstuff them they break and are no longer useful right they just no. they just break under the weight right so you if, if you overuse words then they they just they lose well, their bite right i mean they, well the yeah the meaning changes according to how how you keep using it so yeah um, yeah if you keep using racism for a lot of things then it stops being so bad um yeah and then you so, don't have uh, you don't have anything you don't have anything left. But I think there is there is a sense um, that for some people, if you believe in in an overarching kind of conspiracy theory, like like patriarchy, or or if you believe that like everybody is is a part of this this evil system, whether it be kind of a, a racist society, or once you buy into that, and I know this because I grew up um, in you know. When I was younger, teenager, I was involved in a very kind of fundamentalist uh, Pentecostal church, and so I'm I'm very familiar, like on a intimate terms with how demonology works and how that yeah. kind of worldview, where where you just see, uh, as they put it, uh, you see a, a demon under every doily, like you see <laughs> you see these kind of demonic forces manifesting themselves in in everything, right? I mean, like, I, I think this one guy that I, you know, I, I love him, um, but he's, he's kind of gone a little loony, but um, I've known him my whole life, and he's still very much in in the church and in that kind of uh, way of seeing things, and he just, if you talk to him, anything that's not going well in his life, whether it be his relationship with his, with his two children, whether it be something at work, whether it be his health, all of those things are manifestations of demonic forces, so his yeah. his daughter, who's a, a a lesbian, she has a demon, 
right? And it's a it's a, a sexual perversion demon that makes her like you know tits or whatever. Like like that's I mean I'm being, I'm being flippant about it, but he genuinely believes that all of the bad things in his life are because of demonic forces, right? And yeah. so when I hear people talk, you know, these people who've bought into some sort of crazy overarching metaphysical theory where everything they don't like in their life, whether it be problems at work, is because of sexism or because of racism or because of homophobia or because of you know, whatever, fill in the blanks. I, I'm very yeah. familiar with those, those kind of totalizing worldviews. And I, I just don't... Yeah. I don't know if you can really argue with somebody like that because they yeah. have an answer. They have an answer for everything. Yeah. I mean, no, they're a little bit like the, um, the schizophrenics, you know, yeah. who have some, some delusion. And then, you know, there's just this whole elaborate system built around it, where how everything is uh, support for this delusion. Uh, and, um, and, you know, evidence that appears to be against it is just like a conspiracy or something. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I don't know. So, you know, I was, uh, when you were saying that, that reminded me of the Marxists, where um, everything is explained by class conflict or something. Yeah. And if you don't um, see that, it's because you have false consciousness. Or, yeah, something like that. Which is a wonderful um, just out, right? It means that you can never be wrong. Yeah, that's, that's great, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, you know, uh, epistemologically, you might think, oh, well... Um, I've heard that simpler theories are better. So if I have a theory that explains everything bad by a single cause, that's a really simple theory. So that's good, right? <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, but I, I, I think this example kind of shows that, yeah, no, simpler theories aren't necessarily better. It's like simplicity isn't always a virtue. What matters is likelihood and in some areas, the simpler theory is not likely to be true because we know that the world is complicated. Yeah. Like, there are a lot of problems in the world. Like, if you just start to get a realistic picture of what human beings are like, there are a lot of different causes of problems. So if you're able to subsume everything into a theory, that's probably because you're bullshitting, right? Because <laughs> you're deceiving yourself. Yeah. Like, that's more likely than that actually the world is a lot simpler than i thought it was yeah well i know this this post you had about you know social justice warriors and justice is, is really just sort of kind of an, an off hand thing for you it's a footnote to your so what is what is really at this point uh, in, got you engaged like what problems are you really you know into at the moment and trying to work out and what are pro what are some projects yeah. you're working on now uh, so I was doing research about um, the justice system, right? Um, speaking of justice, and uh, you know there are a lot of problems in the justice system. I'm I'm writing about and also kind of thinking about well how agents in the justice system should behave. Uh, so you know there are a bunch of unjust laws, and what should you do if like if you're a judge or if you're a jury member, and you know somebody's being tried for violating an unjust law. What should you do? Should you just like, you know, enforce that law because it's the law, or should you try to undermine the law, right? So, and uh, you know, you probably know my view. Uh, my view is, if you're a jury member, you should uh, you should refuse to convict anyone under an unjust law. So, 
you know, just vote to acquit, even if they obviously did it. Uh, if you're a judge, you should just sort of like try to undermine the enforcement of the law in whatever way you can without getting removed from office, I guess. So you're, right, the, so. you're like an anti-Kantian. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm advocating following justice, not human-made laws. Right? Yeah. That's the laws made by the politicians, right? And, um, you know, like, why do we think that the dictates of these politicians have this kind of like amazing special authority where like it overrides all the principles of justice, right? There's some kind of amazing cases of just like really obviously unjust things that um, a judge or a jury did because uh, it was required by the law, right? Mm-hmm. So like, uh, you know, I read about a case where uh, this person got sentenced to 60 years in prison we're selling uh, $40 worth of cocaine to a police informant. And, you know, with the, with the sentencing laws, um, you get, there are some crazy results like this. Uh, if the person has previous convictions, there are these minimum sentencing requirements and things. Uh, and uh, the guy sold the cocaine on more than one occasion. It was like the $40 worth of cocaine total, but it was like in two different sales. So you get two counts. <laughs> so, um, and nobody would think that that was a just sentence, right? Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a case of a guy being sentenced to 70 years in prison for stealing a tuna fish sandwich from a Whole Foods market. And, uh, and you know, again, the, there's a story about the sentencing laws where um, the guy had previous convictions. Uh, so there's some, you know, three strikes type law. And uh, he, uh, I guess he had like a three-inch pocket knife and allegedly threatened the guard with it. And so that makes it an aggravated robbery. Oh <laughs> and so, so he gets he gets 70 years. Um, and, you know, again, there's a thing like, um, it's not just like some weird controversial libertarian opinion that that's an unjust sentence. Like, no, actually no person would think that that was just. Yeah. It's not just like, um, oh, well, you know, we can't agree on what justice requires or not. Like, I bet even the legislators who wrote the law they looked at that case they would go oh shit that's unjust yeah <laughs> they're on the jury although since politicians are liars they probably wouldn't admit that they knew it was unjust okay <laughs> um, right but okay but then the court just gives the people just gives these sentences which they don't think are just and nobody thinks is just so what the hell are we doing <laughs> like you know why what's the purpose of the justice system well, I think the the argument that they that they would make, you know, you know, to some extent to try and explain that is, okay, take for instance like drug laws, right? For a very long time, we just we just uh, decriminalized and legalized weed here in Canada, as you have in Colorado, I believe, already, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, but long before that happened, the cops had already just stopped, you know, although the stuff was on the books. They just didn't enforce any of it because the cops just thought this is bullshit. Like I'm not like I have more important work to do. This is not a big deal. Uh, half my friends smoke weed on the weekends. I'm not. I'm not enforcing these laws, right? Um, but sometimes in minority communities, when they just wanted to harass them or they wanted to like you know look through their pockets or their car, they would suddenly enforce those laws in those communities. So I think, yeah. you know, a lot of the mandatory sentencing 
laws were put in place um, in certain places as a way of trying to actually create more justice and to make sure that you're not kind of only enforcing the laws. I mean, the, the right thing to do would no. be to just remove the laws completely. But while they are on the books, there is a you know a fairly good argument to be made to say, well, let's make sure that we enforce these equally to everybody. Yeah, yeah. Well, so um, you might think, yeah, so justice requires uh, treating equal cases equally. But um, is it better to have uniform injustice or to sometimes have injustice and sometimes have justice, right? <laughs> so, I mean, like if the just sentence is uh, five years and uh, some people are getting five years and some people are getting 20, should we level it up to 20? <laughs> I guess it's better if everybody gets the 20. Yeah. Well, no, this, this actually just... this actually goes right back to your, you know, your original point about social justice and I. I think one of the questions, and I, and I realize that this sometimes, you know, is vulnerable to the critique of that I'm trying to be a mind reader, but I think it's it's a good question to ask when you are trying to sort of make the world a better place. Are you trying to raise people up, or are you trying to pull people down? Right. Yeah. So, are you trying to sort of are you looking at this and saying, well, I want everybody to have the same injustice equally? <laughs> and then we'll call that just. I mean, that's that's not a that's not the path forward to the good society. Um, yeah. Or are you saying, well, yeah, I I want everybody um, to have the same sort of clemency and mercy, and you know, I want everybody as a, you know what it was. Tim Crider, I think he uh, he wrote a very hilarious comical essay where he said, uh, you know, I want white privilege for everybody. <laughs> He's like, I think everybody should should know yeah. the 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 pleasure of talking to a cop when you're a little bit inebriated and saying, you know, I'm two blocks away from my house, and I'm I'm only slightly above the limit, and I'm sorry, I won't do it again. And then to just say, all right, go home, sleep it off. Like yeah. everybody should have that kind of, rather than saying, oh, I want yeah. I want this bad. But I I do get the sense with a fair number of activists that there's this vindictiveness and it's like i want you know it's payback time bitches you know like i want everybody to i want everybody's yeah. life to suck as much as mine does yeah you know welcome yeah, to or, my world you know that kind of that kind of uh, vibe yeah yeah so you know this reminds me of a uh, um i don't know sort of joke um that uh okay so there's you know there's this poor city and whatever poor people in the streets and there's this person who drives by in this um, uh, fancy car, you know, whatever, big limousine and stuff. And uh, the socialist sees it and says, nobody should have so much. And the capitalist sees this and says, everybody should have so much. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, so, and, um, you know, it's, uh, unfortunately, it's easier to level everybody down. Like, oh, there's inequality. It's, uh, it's totally feasible to bring about equality by reducing everyone to the lowest level. It's really hard to bring about equality by raising everyone to the highest level. But, uh, you know, the, the easy thing is bad and the good thing is good. Yeah. I don't, uh, I don't know how easy it is. I think people think it's easy, but I think yeah. usually if you look at the, you know, this experiment has been run many times in the last century where, you do exactly that, and usually what happens is the the whole economy stalls, 
and because people have no more kind of incentive to to keep working and to you know and things just mess up i mean i right now i'm just uh, i'm reading this book uh, jared diamond's new book upheaval and he talks about how he spent some time in chile in the early 1930s after Allende was brought in. And he said it was just ridiculous. Like they, they put this friend of his who was 19 years old, they put him in charge of like a major piece of the economy just yeah. because he was like the son of, uh, you know, one of the people in power. Like he, I see. he, he had no <laughs> idea what he was doing like yeah. whatsoever. And they, and so he, tried his best but he kind of messed things up a lot and messed up yeah. their copper mining industry for about two years until they put somebody else in so yeah i mean these these kinds of redistributions and you know we've seen the same thing i mean you look at what happened in zimbabwe and where when you take these people who have been farming a piece of land for three generations and they've they've gotten really good at it and they have distribution networks all over global distribution networks and they're making a lot of money if you just expropriate the land and put party hacks in power who don't even know how to you know the first thing about farming well that doesn't work out very well yeah um yeah so you know i say it's easy i mean um well you can you can equalize people and um but they're just going to be equalized at a really low level, right? Yeah. So, like the, the economy may fall apart, and then we can all be equally poor. Yeah. Uh, well, um, what you were saying about the prison and the justice system—I don't know if you watched John Oliver, but uh, he was talking about the prison system in his last episode. And apparently, there's—I <laughs> mean, it, it's just shocking his clip. But the the prisons right now in the United States have become a big money maker for yeah. a lot of industries and it's it's basically just this really really cheap labor and so they've been saying well if we have prison reform it's going to mess up our economy yeah. i mean i don't even know i don't even know <laughs> what to say to that it's so horrifying yeah. uh, but you know there apparently this is a really big deal there's uh there's like call centers in the united states um a lot of them when you get on, you're t if you talk to a human being, uh, if they're not in Mumbai, they're in a prison. Yeah, I see. <laughs> That's I mean, so you, are you writing on stuff like that, or are you just writing on the actual, the the front end of people getting? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I didn't. I didn't talk about that. Um, I was kind of thinking about, um, I guess, you know, the stuff that uh, decisions that courts make, and uh, whether they're just or not. Um, and, uh, you know, just and unjust laws. Um, you know, a, a little bit back, you mentioned that one of the motivations for the mandatory minimum sentencing was, um, sort of, uh, equality or something or more uniformity in the way that uh, people get sentenced, uh, which is true. Uh, there would be these mandatory minimums and then the sentencing guidelines created by the, um, U S sentencing commission, um, were intended to create uniformity, but actually they don't. And the reason is, um, well, prosecutorial discretion. So um, the if, if there's a crime with a mandatory minimum, the prosecutor gets to decide whether to charge the person under that statute. And 
if the prosecutor files the charges under that under the statute with a mandatory minimum, then he can force the person to get this long sentence. But he can also charge the person with a lesser crime. And so then the prosecutors just use this to coerce people to uh, plead guilty, right? So, right? They say, if you don't plead guilty, I'm going to charge you with this harsh crime, with this mandatory minimum, or whatever, or I'm going to add additional charges or something like that. That is a total is undermining of the Anglo-American justice yeah. tradition. Is yeah. that you're basically just like edging out juries and judges, and it's just prosecutors yeah. are just running the show. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, it's something like... Um, According to one source, something like 3% of convictions come from a trial, right? And the, um, um, the inequality here is uh, if you go to trial, you get a sentence on average 3.3 times longer than the sentence you would have gotten from plea bargaining. So, okay, so now we have not achieved uniformity. <laughs> We've achieved this insane, uh, you know, obviously unjust inequality, like you get this huge penalty for going to trial, which, by the way, obviously unconstitutional. Right? Obviously, you can't give somebody a penalty for insisting on their constitutional rights, which include the right to a trial. Wow. Yeah, I know. I've, I've heard these sort of these crazy stories. Jason Brennan always like I, I have to sometimes if I'm in having a bad day, I just can't look at anything Jason Brennan <laughs> posts because he just he posts these things and they're just so enraging and just yeah. so horrible. But one of the things he posted, I think it was last year, it was about this this young guy, 18, 19 years old, and he was falsely accused um, and he could have they knew they had a really shaky case. And so if he if he had pled out, they would have given him, you know, I think time served or, you know, very slap on the wrist. But he was like, no, I'm innocent. This is bullshit. I'm not like, I'm not going to accept any kind of plea deal. He ended up yep. staying in this prison for four and a half years. He like attempted suicide twice. He was like beat up in the prison really badly a couple times. He was sexually, like it was just an absolute horror show. And it was all because yeah. he had the temerity to actually stand up for his rights yeah. and say, like, no, I'm not going to plead guilty to something I totally obviously didn't do. Yeah. And it's, did this, sorry, did this guy get convicted? Um, I think the entire time, if I remember correctly, it was, it was worse than that. It was that the entire time he was just sort of in this limbo Wait, area. Trial. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I heard that I heard that New York is particularly bad, where um, people have to wait for trial so long that um, they might be in jail if they can't make bail. They might be in jail for longer than the sentence if they're convicted. <laughs> yeah, this was a New York. This was a New York story. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so um, <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, the Constitution also guarantees this right to a speedy and public trial by a jury of your peers. Uh, but uh, it's not that speedy. Um, but uh, I think I think uh, you actually do have the right to have the trial more quickly. It's just that you need time to prepare. And so if you take more than a certain amount, like a reasonable amount of time, then, um, you know, then they just put you at the end of the queue and then you're waiting for years. Mm -hmm. I mean, but um, shouldn't you be able to just vacate everything if if they're if they're taking too long? 
Yeah, I mean, so obviously, if if the time that you're awaiting trial is longer than a sentence and you're in jail, then they should let you go at that point. Yeah. Um, I uh, I don't actually know what they do at that point, right? I know here but, in Canada that's the case. If you if you are if you're waiting too long for trial, um, there and I can't remember what the it's just vacated. Like at yeah. a certain point, and so they they actually they have all these laws here, um, like contempt of justice and things like that. So if you bring a frivolous um, frivolous suit against somebody, the charges for that are really really serious here, uh, and the reason is is because yeah. they need to keep the courts freed up, because if the wait is too long, then they just have to let everybody go. <laughs> Yeah, like they literally just they, they say you're not. It's not. Um, I can't remember the exact language, but it's an undue burden to yeah. have somebody to have that hanging over somebody's head for for a long time, right? So, depending on the charge, I think it's like like a year or something like that. If you have to wait more than a year, then it's just it's gone, right? So they will yeah. do, they will do everything right as that clock is ticking and it's getting closer to the deadline they will really like haul ass to try and you know do something about that case you know one way or the other because it'll just be but it seems like in the, in the states people will just be waiting for just years i mean it's yeah. it's crazy it's like you're a different person by the time you're like, yes you know waiting I mean, 4 years for trial that's crazy yeah, so now, um, you know, that's an atypical case, and uh, New York is a particularly bad place. Um, most most parts of the country are better. Yeah. Um, but still, you know, it, I mean, the the whole court system is unreasonably uh, expensive in both time and money, and, you know, you would think you could resolve disputes more quickly than this. Um, you know, uh you might think maybe uh, maybe they need to hire more people. Uh, <laughs> <you're> not, <laughs> what, I don't know. what do you think about what they're doing in Australia and New Zealand, where they have these? It's it's almost like um, you don't. They're trying to get away from kind of punitive justice, and they do like retributive, like where you you can actually Rest, you can I mean, work restitution. Out, you rest, yes, exactly. So you can work out an agreement. Well, rather than doing jail time, which just costs the taxpayers a lot of money, you can actually pay back an agreed amount. Like maybe yeah. like they garnish your wages for for two years. So let's say for like uh, you you break into my house and you steal my my stereo and my computer or something. You steal like ten thousand dollars worth of stuff, right? And then uh, we catch you later. Rather than putting you in in jail we can work out an agreement whereby you have to pay me back either the $10,000 or maybe we'll add in some damages, you know, maybe like, maybe we'll make it 20, right? But you pay me back $20,000 garnished from your wages for the next two years or something like that. And that that just seems like a really, really smart solution. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the way uh, property crime should be dealt with. Like you should pay compensation for it the prison system is um inhumane right uh there's uh prison abuse is so common and it's just such a horrible place to be 
that it's kind of unjust to send people to prison for anything but the worst crimes, right? Mm -hmm. And generally, if it's just a property crime, it can be compensated. Um, There are some people who still need to go to prison because, um, like, we have these violent criminals who they're just going to do it again, right? And um, violent crime can cause more harm, just like, you know, by one violent crime, you can cause more harm than like the total harm of a lifetime prison sentence. So, yeah. Um, but those people are rare. You know, I mean, they're, uh, they're probably, they're probably, I know I would, I don't know if I, if I had to just sort of throw a ballpark figure out, I would, I would guess that they're at, at most 10% of the prison population, probably more like five. Um, so I'm not sure. I mean, I think uh, something like half of the prison population are in for a violent crime. Um, you know, some of the violent crimes might be relatively um, small, and so um, they might not be that dangerous. You know, not not all of the violent criminals are too dangerous to to be released, but, mm-hmm. um, and not all of the crimes are uncompensatable. But some of them are. Uh, we have some terrible people, you know, in <laughs> in the world. And yeah. something, you know, somewhere between one and three percent of the population are psychopaths. Uh, and if they if they happen to like violence, they cannot be stopped except by putting them in prison forever. Like it cannot be cured. <laughs> uh, can't be cured. Can't be deterred. Yeah, yeah. I I remember the first time I met somebody like that. I remember yeah. it had a very formative effect on me. It was a guy I knew when I was a teenager, and. He was a you know nice guy. I mean, we weren't, we weren't like close friends. We just we went to the same school and we hung out and stuff. Like but he would um, he would mug people, and I found this out like later on. But he would just like see somebody with a jacket that he wanted, and he would follow them home and just like you know whack them over head over the head with a brick or something, and just like take their stuff. And he would rob yeah. old ladies on Sunday mornings when they were like coming home from church. I mean, just absolutely horrible. But he had zero remorse. Like, yeah. absolutely. It's just like the the moral emotions um, just were not there in him. And I became I became yeah. fascinated by him for a little bit. And because like, I wanted to understand, I'm like, you know, how is this guy like this? Because he had. Uh, Two siblings, a younger brother, older sister, who were both sweet, completely normal, kind, decent people. His parents were together. They loved each other. They loved their kids. They were, there was nothing there that you could just point to and say, oh, you know, it's abuse or neglect or like, no. He had two loving parents in a well-to-do middle-class home. He had two other siblings who were completely normal. It's just something in him just was like not there. It's Broken. like it's like yeah. yeah, it was like or it's it's almost I remember looking at my diary entries from that point and like I'm I'm partially colorblind. And yeah. I I see whatever's going on with people like that is it's almost like a kind of a moral colorblindness. Yeah. It's They're as if they blind. yeah, they just don't see um, they don't see all the kind of moral colors that most of us see. Yeah. Right? And I don't, I, mean, I don't know what we do with people like that. Yeah. So, I mean, they have to be in, in prison for the rest of their lives. Right. Cause I mean, so, um, you know, people who are like full psychopaths, um, they are never reformed. 
right? They're going to be that way for the rest of their life. You can't teach them and you can't even deter them. Like you threaten to punish them and they don't care. Right. <laughs> and plus, you know, the psychopaths tend to be highly manipulative. So uh, they will try, they will figure out what they have to say to a parole board in order to get out. And, you know, they'll like do some big act about how they found Jesus or something. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then they'll get out and then immediately like they're walking, they're walking out of the jail. They're thinking about the next crime. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty, I mean, as a, I don't know. I mean, as a libertarian, does that, how, how do you sort of square that? Did, is it no problem at all or? Um, oh, well, so, I mean, um, if you're a minimal state libertarian, there's not really a problem. Like, uh, it's a, uh, it's a duty of the state to protect people that we've got to protect people from the psychopaths and we can just like put them in jail for the rest of their lives. Um, if you're an anarchist, then you might think, Oh yeah. Uh, well, so, you know, somebody has got to take the expense. So who's going to take the expense of jailing these people? Um, I think it is, uh, you know, I am an anarcho-capitalist. That, that's so, what I was um, asking you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know what would happen. Um, I think it's plausible that uh, serious criminals who um, can't be reformed would be executed. Um, I, and I'm not saying that that's the just solution, but it's likely that would happen uh, because we don't want to keep them, we want to uh, pay for their upkeep for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you might think, um, oh, well, they could, they could like be forced to work in prison. Um, but I mean, I'm a little skeptical about how economically viable that is. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, I mean, you have, uh, like serious criminals are, um, not great workers either. <laughs> so right, it's not, yeah, not clear to me that this is, this would be profitable. Yeah. Well, I mean, th that's a funny thing because of popular culture. I think there's a lot of, I see this, I don't know if you see this with your students, but I see with a lot of students, they have this idea that, um, the sort of the myth of the criminal mastermind, right? That they're these brilliant, you know, and in fact, uh, when they've when they've looked at large, you know, numbers of prison populations, in fact, people in prisons tend to have low IQs. They tend to be sort of low performers on everything, including impulse control, work ethic, all that stuff. So, yeah, they, they're not necessarily, if you're looking at the prison population, as a whole being like a big money maker it's probably not the best <laughs> probably yeah. not the best idea but i mean something has to be done uh, because the the american prison population is outrageously large now I mean, it's it's so yeah. it's unjust yeah. it's expensive it's unsustainable yeah so, so what do we do yeah so you know we've got we've got a higher incarceration rate than any other country in the world right yeah and this is this is the land of the free and we're the leaders <laughs> in locking people up isn't that weird? It's very uh, weird. <laughs> but uh, so, you know, part of this is because um, sentences got a lot longer in, uh, in, I don't know, the last 40 years or something. Um, Primarily with, uh, under Clinton, right? It was, I think that was the uh, really big one. I'm not I sure. I mean, I think they were in, increasing over a period of 40 years. Okay. Um, but I don't know exactly that, you know, I don't have the picture of the graph in my mind right now. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's partly that uh, sentence lengths increase, and so that increases the prison population, and a lot of the sentences are just unreasonably long. Uh, so 
you know, one indication of this is, uh, well, we sentence people a lot longer than other countries do, right? So, like, um, you know, you get, um, uh, I don't have the statistics exactly, but you get something like five times longer sentences in America than you do in Germany and France and things like this. Mm-hmm. Maybe three, maybe three times longer than Canada or something. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, another thing is, well, we have some people in prison who shouldn't be punished at all, so. Something like a quarter of the people are drug offenders uh, as their most serious offense. And so we just legalize that. And then uh, and then also there will be less other crimes. There will be less property crimes uh, after drugs are legalized. And then for the property crimes, most of those should be dealt with by um, people having to pay compensation. Uh, and that, um, I believe that would work, right? So you might worry, oh, maybe the people will not pay the compensation, right? Because uh, they're criminals. <laughs> um, but uh, of course, they're under threat that if they, so you give them some non-prison sentence and they're under the threat that if they don't satisfy the non-prison punishment, then they're going to prison. Yeah, it'd be like and child that, support or alimony or something like that. Like Right, yeah. So, you know, if you don't pay, uh, then you go to prison. And that works. Like, um, so, you know, there are cases where people get that kind of sentence and, uh, and they generally do the thing because they do not want to go to prison. Mm. So that's that's one of your major sort of policy proposals and the stuff you're working on right now. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, my because I'm an anarcho-capitalist, I mean, I really think there should be a radical, like very radical change. But I don't, don't expect that to happen. So um, but, you know, what what we should really have is uh, we need a more competitive system for policing and adjudicating disputes. So. We should really like privatize the court system and privatize the police, but uh, you know that's um, uh, not likely to happen anytime soon. <laughs> Why? Would, but privatizing the police—that's like Pinkertons. I mean, that was an d- absolute disaster. Like the Pinkertons, uh, like that—that's one of the most corrupt sort of yeah, so, group of people in American history. Yeah, I don't know the Pinkertons, but. Um, uh, you know, you have to have a competitive system, right? Well, they were brought so, in to, to bust unions and other things like that because the local police got so sick of being sort of the the stooges for, you know, whoever was running the mine this week. Uh, see, that yeah. they, they created the Pinkertons, and the Pinkertons were, the, were like just thugs, you know, armed thugs yeah. that uh, would beat up striking <laughs> workers and things like that. Right? I see, yeah. So, I mean, the, the anarcho-capitalist proposal is something like, okay, so we have all these uh, private security guard companies, right? Yeah. There's actually, there's more private security guards than there are government police in the country because um, there are all these people who have to hire security and they don't count on the government. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, individual neighborhoods or um, just like homeowners associations can um, choose a security company and then uh, we can just like have fewer police and, um just like, you know, have more and more things patrolled by the private security guards instead of the police. And, you know, you hear about all these stories about uh, government police shooting people. Yeah. Um, there aren't so many cases of private security guards shooting people. And, um, you know, one of the reasons for this is, well, government, um, the government gets away with a lot of stuff that you would not get away with if you were, if you're a private company. So... They can be sued yep. for a lot Don't of money, do it, and, right. they, and the yeah, right, they, yeah, they get yeah. fired. And they, meanwhile, you know, like I'm sure you have in the states what we have here. You have these police unions that are just absolutely, you know, 
yeah. they're bulletproof. <laughs> like they, they can do anything, and the officers can do absolutely anything, and the police union will have their back. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean. Well, so yeah, I mean, in the in the United States, it's really hard for cops to get convicted of anything. Um, so you know, if I shoot somebody to death, and then I say I thought he had a gun, and he didn't, right? Like it's undisputed that the person didn't have a weapon. And uh, he was reaching for his wallet or something. And I say, I thought he had a gun, so I killed him. Um, I don't think things are going to go very well for me. <laughs> I think I think there's going to be a lot of trouble for me. Yeah. Uh, but uh, if you're a cop, I think you can do that and you can get away with it. They're almost never convicted. And then if they are convicted, they get sentences that are a tiny fraction of um, what a non-cop would get. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and by the way, like, I'm not, I'm not sure what the just punishment is. is it, okay. So maybe like maybe the cop really did think he had a gun, right? And he was wrong. Okay. But so what's the right punishment for that? I don't know, but I know it's not right that the cop gets, um, either gets off completely scot-free or gets a much smaller punishment than a non-police officer would get for doing the same thing. Yeah. It, it, in many ways, you could actually make the argument that it should be in the opposite direction, that they should be held to a higher standard because, you know, a, a private citizen presumably doesn't have all the training that a law enforcement officer has. And so yeah. I would actually expect the private citizen to make a mistake more than the police officer. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, you might think that the police assume the risk of dealing with criminals, right? Like by voluntarily signing up for the job. Yeah. If you're a private citizen and you didn't seek out a criminal, but a, a person who you think is a criminal, um, just, you know, ran into you and threatened you then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember there was a couple, cause I, I, I know a lot of cops and a lot of my former <laughs> students are police officers and in law enforcement. And, uh, they, a lot of them were after the whole Parkland shooting happened. They said, well, you know, you shouldn't be so judgy of the police officer who didn't do anything, right? Who didn't run into this. And, you know, response was like, dude, like, that's his train. He They gave him a gun and he's stationed next to a high school. Like, that's, you had one job. <laughs> like, like yeah, yeah. That's your job. <laughs> like, you're supposed to. Um, intervene with your gun if there's if they're in danger. I say, yeah. well, you know, it's really scary. I'm like, well, they have no problem, like you know, shooting yeah. young black men who are unarmed, like on the street. <laughs> like you know, that's they don't seem to have problems like pull, pulling the trigger. You know, yeah, like, I don't. Um, so I'm not sure. Was that was that person a sec private security guard or a government? I think he was actually. You know, I. I'd have to check. I think he was actually a cop because they have yeah. cops stationed at high schools all over the United States now. I say, yeah. Um, but he eventually was, uh, they did go after him. Yeah. He was I not. Mean, and, but it was considered, uh, you know, yet again, Jason Brennan, uh, he was posting about this, but um, this was another case where he was, they did go after him, but it was very atypical and strange that yeah. he, there had been consequences for this. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't uh, exactly know um, the details, but like it might be that uh, he's supposed to wait for backup. Um, 
I mean, I think that uh, usually what the police do is if there's a violent criminal, like they just they have overwhelming force. It'll be just like all these cops around. Um, so yeah. we had a really but, um, big we had a massacre here in Montreal, which yeah. uh, where this like misogynist Maclepin, he went into uh, an engineering school and he separated the men and the women and then he. It's called the Polytechnic Massacre. It was, you know, uh-huh. world news, really big deal. Uh, but he, um, the cops were waiting outside until they had overwhelming force. And yep. after that, after that massacre, they changed all the teaching in the police schools and, and they changed the rules and they said, no, if there's a violent um, shooter and you're by yourself, it is your obligation to run in. Yeah. You don't wait until you've got like overwhelming force. Yes, you call for backup, but you run in right away. Yeah. And, and that's what they've done, you know, when things have happened since then and it's it saved so many lives. I mean, cuz they they had a shooter with like a lot of ammunition and a big an AR15 actually. Um in a the college where my wife teaches, Dawson College, and he only ended up killing one person because the cops ran right in and yeah. like engaged him and he ended up getting shot himself. Right. Yeah. Uh, sounds right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in fairness, I want to say like um, most of the people who get shot are criminals. Right. <laughs> like, uh, and I think actually most of the people who get shot, even when they're unarmed are actually criminals. Um, like, it's not like the cops just go out and see a black person and just shoot him because he's black. Um, however, you know, that being said, um, it did, like just because they're criminals doesn't mean they should be shot. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, you know what I'm saying? Like, I want to be fair. Like they're not shooting random people, but also there is an excessive force problem. Like, and in the United States, there's, um, there's just a lot more shooting than there are, than there is in other countries. Uh, you know, we have overly aggressive training or something. Yeah. Well, you also have an incredibly armed citizenry, which makes yeah. it a completely different game for the law enforcement. Like most yeah. of the time uh, for law enforcement here, I know this from talking to lots of cops. When you go to like a, a call on a domestic or something like that, like unless you're going to the house of somebody who's known to be involved in organized crime, you 99% of the time, you can be almost sure that they don't have a gun, Right. Yeah. That that changes things a lot, right? Whereas in the United States, pretty much your working assumption has to be that they could be armed because there's what like a couple hundred million firearms in circulation, something like that. It's like it's there's a lot, right? So yeah, that probably makes things much more tense and crazy than they might otherwise be, right? Yeah. So that's right. Although, I mean, we have more shootings of unarmed people than uh, other countries, you know, per unit of population. Okay. Um, but and also, but you might think, yeah, but the cops don't necessarily know who's armed or unarmed. So they're probably more afraid than cops in other countries. Um, uh, uh, so true. But also um, the murder statistics show that uh, the police are not at higher risk of being murdered than the average citizen. Right there, like uh, the rate of getting murdered per unit of population is lower for police officers than for the general population. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah, so, I know. Uh, like, they always say, oh, it's such a dangerous job. Actually, firefighters, way more dangerous job. Lumberjacks, uh, yeah. fisher, fishermen, um, nurses. <laughs> like, There's a, a lot of professions that are much more dangerous than uh, law enforcement. So that, yeah, that, that whole like, well, it's a really dangerous, yeah, that just is not borne out in the numbers at all. Um, yeah. Um, I think lumberjacks are the most, uh, most dangerous profession. That's the most dangerous one. That's what I heard. Yeah. Um, maybe the most dangerous legal one. I think prostitution is the most dangerous, uh, profession, you know, including illegal ones. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's, uh, that's sad. Yeah. We really cause... need, we really we need to legalize sex work like yesterday. Yeah. That would make <laughs> it a lot safer. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, of course, like these drug, drug related professions, um, selling drugs, uh, that's going to be dangerous because you have to deal with all these criminals all the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, that would be a lot safer too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to have to end there. I'm so sad. I have so many other things I want to talk to you about, uh, but we, we've, uh, we've clocked two hours, so we've got to, we're going to have to yeah, I think, draw it. Are there any sort of closing remarks you might want to tell our, uh, our listeners or? I don't know. Uh, you know, pay attention to justice, be just and, uh, and be reasonable. <laughs> But uh, but yeah no that that's fantastic and we'll definitely have to to talk again and I would actually like to at some point uh, get you back on the podcast to talk just about the problem of political authority uh, just yeah. that uh, that one book because it's just such a a rich source and just just going by all of my notes in the margins and questions oh, yeah. and stuff like that that could. Uh, occupy an entire episode another two easily hours. oh very easily <laughs> easily maybe, right. maybe we'll do three hours next time. yeah maybe we'll go joe rogan long but uh all right well thank you very much it's wonderful to actually hear your voice in real life yep. and uh okay. i'll see you again soon okay thanks okay take care bye